Welcome to the Matt Morgan Coaching Podcast. The fact that you're listening means you're ready to be inspired and empowered to take your life, love, and leadership to the next level. Hello, my friends. It's Matt Morgan. Welcome back to a brand new podcast. Today, we unpack our third religion that we are looking at of Judaism. We are in a series, if you just are joining us, of unpacking kind of a 101 perspective of the five major religions. So that includes Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. We also started the series by looking at the cosmos because how we got here, what's the purpose of this life? Where do we go when we die? You know, really small questions like that. (laughs) Looking at the cosmos kind of started out the conversation by which these religions have answers to our deepest questions. And what we're doing in this series is taking a scientific and a historical perspective so that we can really just paint with a broad brush of getting us a framework around what these religions entail. This is birthed out of so many of my clients and friends that I've talked to to say, hey, we actually really don't know what these religions say. Could you give us a framework? And so that's what we're doing. And today it's Judaism, baby. Judaism is an amazing religion because it really is the foundation of which Christianity springs off of and even is an offshoot of where Islam offshoots from. And so Judaism, we tip our hat to this religion in so many ways. And so it's a religion that started 4,000 years ago. And the perspective of the Jewish people is one of which that at the time, 4,000 years ago, was super unique. You see, at the time, other religions were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped and served many gods. But this religion believed in one god. This god was so big and one god in a monotheistic religion. They believed that you couldn't even create a name for God, so they named God an unmentionable name called Yahweh. And Yahweh was prescribed to be this God that created the heavens and the earth, the universe around us. We tip our hat to Yahweh who created that and did so in seven days, really in six days, because the seventh day God rested to which Jews today call the Shabbat. That's the day of rest where you do no work, but you worship, you pray, you connect with your family. And that is the start of really how they live their life to this day, many Jews. And so, So Judaism starts with a man named Abraham. God or Yahweh makes a covenant relationship. Covenant is a big word in Judaism and it means ain't never going to (laughs) end. Means we are with you. I will be your God and you will be my people and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky is what God or Yahweh says. And so Judaism really has three different names. It starts with what's called the Hebrew people. Then it shifts to be Israel. Israel was an actual person. Israel was a man who actually had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became known as the 12 tribes of Israel, which we'll talk about later. And then it goes on to Judaism. So if you hear Hebrew, if you hear Israel, and if you hear Jew, it's all the same thing. All right. Now, a little bit about Judaism. Judaism today has 14 million followers, okay, that prescribe themselves as Jews. Now, let me put that into context with you in light of the other four religions of Christianity, Islam, Hindu, and Buddhism, okay? Today, there are 2.3 billion people that subscribe to Christianity. That's the largest religion in the world. Now, there's many forms we'll unpack in a couple of weeks. There are 1.8 
billion Muslims, so that's the second largest religion and actually the fastest growing religion. And then there are one billion Hindus primarily living in India, as we've already discussed a couple of weeks ago. And there's over 500 million Buddhists, okay? Now, when you put that, we're talking about 500 million, we're talking about billions, and then all of a sudden you hear 14 million. (laughs) So how are they one of the major religions? Well, they're one of the major religions because of Christianity offshooting from them, because of Islam even offshooting off of Judaism. So Judaism has deep, deep roots. And God, Yahweh, would always say that even through trials and tribulations, which the Jews go through more than any other religious group, that there will always be a remnant. Remnant meaning a small number of people. And so this Yahweh, God, creates, you know, like I said, the heavens and the earth, and he chooses the Jews to be his chosen people. And one of the big things that Jews celebrate are prophets. Prophets are humans that God talks to so that on behalf of through the prophets gives the message to the people. The most famous prophet is Moses. And Moses was sent 3,000 years ago into Egypt, and Egypt was the superpower 3,000 years ago, who oppressed the Hebrew people. Throughout this podcast, you will see the Jews are oppressed again and again and again and again. And the first oppression really starts where the Egyptians enslaved them. God, through this miraculous act that you can read in the second letter of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. That's one of their main scriptures that they use. And in the second book called Exodus, you'll see the story of Moses. Moses, through this miraculous act, is sent by God as a prophet to free the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. And through this miraculous act, to this day, there are celebration called Passover. There is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There's multiple things that come out of this particular book of the Torah. And Moses then, after freeing the people, is sent up a mountain, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, ten ways to live your life which were the North Star, if you will, for Judaism. Now, as the years progressed, the Jews continued to add to that 10, not just a few, but 600 more. In fact, there were 613 total laws or commandments the Jewish people would hold to and follow in their day. And so it is big time about following and doing the right thing. And there one day, the goal is to receive heaven. They believe not so much in a hell, but they call it Sheol, which is the underworld. And so there is this duality of, you know, Christians call it hell, Jews call it Sheol, the underworld, if you will. So you'll see that this is really kind of the starting point of Judaism. And as the years progress, they live as basically a monastic community. They have a tent where they worship. And for years and years and years and years, God has real no home. One of the greatest times of peace that the Jews had was in 1000 BC. So we have AD, we have BC, 1000 BC, King David, the famous king rules. And we have the Star of David, which is actually the Jewish symbol today. The six-pointed star is the Jewish symbol. David is a big figure. One of David's sons was Solomon. And after David comes Solomon, and Solomon builds the very first temple 
God's home in 931 BC. And as the years progress, one of the things that happens is that 400 years later, more oppression starts to happen. The 12 tribes of Israel begin to become split and divided. There's a northern Israel, there's a northern tribe, there's 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. And all of a sudden, this other empire rises up called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians come in three different times and start chipping away at the people at the northern tribes to start and then the southern tribe. And the 586 BC was the massive destruction of the temple. The walls of Jerusalem that David had come and conquered many years ago was suddenly torn down. Israel, Jerusalem, as we know it today, was that place that David conquered and took their home. And you'll see that this today is the epicenter of Judaism. It is that home that they want. But all of a sudden through oppression, the Babylonians take all the Jews and they exile them back to their land, back to their god, the goddess of Ishtar. She's like a heavy metal goddess. She's like a fertility goddess. And all of them walk through the gate of Ishtar. And as you walk through that gate, it is a symbolic act that you are no longer in the land of Yahweh. You are in the land of Ishtar. Because the temple was destroyed, the Jews thought they lost God. So this is an utter failure in every way. They are completely oppressed. They are completely lost. Their world and their equilibrium is completely shattered in every way. Today, if you go to Berlin, Germany, they have a museum there where you can see today the Ishtar Gate. I mean, how fascinating is that? 2,500 years old, it still stands today. So they rule for hundreds of years. And as the years progress, the Babylonians are taken out by the Persians. The Persians and the Medo-Persians take over. And in the mid-400s, the Medo-Persians allowed some of the Jews to go back home. And to begin rebuilding the wall. So if you read Old Testament passages like Ezra, Nehemiah, these are people who are wanting, living in Persia, to be able to go back home and rebuild the wall. The wall is a city's security point. And you can't have a temple unless you rebuild the wall first. And so after the Persians, the Greeks come up. And after the Greeks, the Romans come up. And this is in the day of Jesus. One of the big things, the Romans were the superpower. And so you'll see all kinds of oppression. But then as the years progress, they're able to rebuild the temple. And this was a huge joyous occasion back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. But you'll see as the years progress, you'll see just more and more and more oppression of the Jews. And so the Romans oversaw and ruled over the Jews. You have the Spanish expulsion in 1492. There's more, but one of the biggest ones that we know of today was in the 1930s and 40s with Nazi Germany. Six million Jews slaughtered. Right. And yet there is a remnant throughout. And when that happened, they really started to go flock to the United States of America as well as to Israel. And so there's this remnant constantly led over. And so one of the big things about Judaism 
that you need to understand is that, you know, even 2,000 years ago, there's really kind of three main types of Judaism to start. There are Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Pharisees were people who believed in the afterlife. They believed and were waiting for a Messiah. And most of Judaism, many forms of Judaism to this day, are still waiting for the Messiah. They believed in angels. They believed in life after death, okay? Sadducees were the second. They were more the intellectual, higher-class group of people. They did not necessarily believe in the afterlife. They did not necessarily believe in and following the 613 laws as much as the Pharisees did. They didn't believe in angels and demons like the Pharisees did. And then there were Essenes, and the Essenes were a monastic radical group of people who lived ascetic lives. They lived celibate lives. And one of the great Essenes that came out of that and followed Jesus was John the Baptist. And what you need to understand about Judaism is, again, they're longing for the Messiah to rescue them and restore them. And what their mind was was from political oppression. And there wasn't just Jesus, who was a Jew, and we'll learn more about Jesus later on, but there were many messiahs. In fact, on top of Jesus, there was at least 20 different messiah figures that the Jews thought, could this be the one that would free us? There was Judas the Galilean in 6 AD who led a tax revolt, and they were like, maybe it's him. There was John the Baptist, who never claimed to be the messiah, but they thought, could this be the one? There was James the Just, who was Jesus's half-brother, you know, same mother, different father. (laughs) And then the most famous one that people thought this was it on top of Jesus was Simon Bar Kokhba, who they called son of the star. Simon Bar Kokhba lived between 132 to 135 AD in his rule and thinking, you know what? He was the one who was going to rebel against the Romans. He had the look, the feel from everything they saw from scriptures that this would be the Jew of the Jews. This would be the Messiah who would free us, who would give us our homeland back, who would free us from oppression. And this is actually the time through Simon Bar Kokhba where Judaism and Christianity became split because Simon Bar Kokhba said, if you don't follow me, you're not Jews. And people who followed Jesus were like, sorry, bro, I'm out. And other people were like, no, you're the one. And so 135 AD, the Jews are kicked out of Jerusalem again. And he told his people to walk back into Jerusalem and take it over. But here's the problem. And this was a massive hit and devastation to Judaism. When they got to Istanbul, the Muslims captured Simon Bar Kokhba and he converted to Islam so that he wouldn't die. And the devastation of the Jews were probably the highest felt in this moment. So the big question a lot of people ask, well, what's up with Jesus? Like, why didn't Jesus, you know, catch on with all the Jews? And it's a great question. And one of the big reasons is because Jesus did not fit the political figure of Judaism. You see, what you need to understand about Judaism is, you know, we have the Torah, which is the first five books, right, of even the Christian Bible, and then we have Talmud. The Talmud are different teachings, and the greatest thing you can have for a Jew, you know, today in America, it's like, okay, what would be, you know, something that people really love? Maybe to be a pro athlete. Maybe that's the best of the best of the best, and only 1% of all people who play football, for example, get to be a professional football player. Well, their professional football player of their day was to be a rabbi, was to be the teacher that was it. And above all else, one man named Josephus, a writer, said, we pride ourselves in the education of our children. 
And the education of children was a central way of life to the Jewish community. And they understood that if they didn't get Torah deep within their bones, within the next generation, that their generation would become extinct. Because right now, this is an oral tradition. It's not really written down. Some things are subscribed, but most people can't even read. And so it's very much orally passed down. So they knew they needed to get Torah within the children. So the question is like, okay, at what age do you begin doing this? And in first century Judaism, which is really what you see within the Roman Empire overseeing, the world subsists through the breath of school children. And the age came where about six years old, you'll see this in one of the Talmud BB21a, it says, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, we accept him and stuff him with Torah like an ox. <laughs> now, what you need to understand, there are three stages of Jewish education, and we're going to get to Jesus here in just a moment here, but you need to understand this framework to understand why is Jesus not prescribed in Judaism today, all right? The first stage stage of the Jewish education is called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer means the house of the book. And at age six years old, between age six and 10, a rabbi would cover your slate of the entire Torah with honey. Honey was a sign of God or Yahweh's favor. Honey is the sweetest, most desired treat you could imagine. And so they wanted to connect the children with the thought of God as the sweetest, most desired thing you could imagine. And as you teach Torah, it would be like honey on your lips, okay? Do you feel that way about Torah? <laughs> By age 10, you guys, these children would memorize all five books of Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorize. <laughs> <laughs> now, we think, how is that even possible to memorize all five of those books? If you ever looked at those books, they're really, really long. I mean, but think about it. We memorize what we value. Think about how many songs you know, Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber and Eminem and country, right? How many lines from Dumb and Dumber do you know, right? We memorize what we value. We just emphasize it in a different culture, in a different capacity within our structure, and so the kids would memorize the entire Torah. That's the first phase. Second phase is called Bet Talmud, which is called the House of Learning. And that is between ages 10 and 14. And they would memorize the entire Old Testament. Genesis to the great Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's called Malachi. All right. So they would memorize the entire Old Testament. And here's one of the big things that they would do, not just memorize it, but their learning would become interactive. Okay. So today in the United States, like a teacher asks my daughter who's in second grade, what is two plus two? And my daughter is supposed to say four. But in their day, it was way more interactive. Instead of saying, what is two plus two, you know, and the child would respond with four, there's the answer. The child would answer the question with the question. So what is two plus two? The child would respond. The student would say, well, what is 16 divided by four? It's like almost like this profound, like Kung Fu approach, questions with answers. And when Jesus was actually 12 years old, his mother and father one day couldn't find him. And where did they finally discover him? He was in the synagogue. That's like the temple where they worship. And he was in the synagogue with rabbis who were amazed at what? His questions and answers. Jesus would have been in this second phase here of Bet Talmud. All right. 
Now, one of the things that if you were the best of the best around this age, 13, 14, right? If you were the best of the best of the best of the best, you would be able to be able to go on to the next layer. If you were the Harvard, if you were the Yale, if you were the 1%, again, the goal is to become a rabbi. You got to go to the next phase. And remember, rabbis, they were the best teachers. They were funny. They were passionate. And their desire was to perpetuate their yoke. A yoke is their interpretation of the Torah, of the Talmud, of the scriptures. And there were different rabbis who had different interpretations. And this is why Jesus says, take my yoke. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the disciple is called a Talmudin, okay? And a Talmudin is one who places themselves under the yoke of the rabbi. And so Jesus is trying to say, my yoke is not of rules of 613 commands. It's of freedom. Okay. And if you were the best of the best of the best of the best, you got to go to the third and final stage of the teaching to be a rabbi. And that's called Bet Midrash. And in Bet Midrash, you go with a rabbi. All right. A rabbi never comes to you. You go to a rabbi and you ask to be a Talmudin, a disciple, so that you can do what he does when you're older. A rabbi will then test you to see if you have what it takes. All right. It's like summer training in football. Maybe you get drafted to the team, but that doesn't mean you make the team. You still got to go through camp and you still got to go through preseason and they're going to make cuts. Okay. And the rabbi will ask questions. He'll ask crazy questions. He'll like, what are the 17 parks of Habakkuk? And give it to me backwards. Right. Or he'll ask questions about remezes. A remez is where the rabbi would quote you a text but they didn't really want to know if you knew the text, but they would rather want you to know the verses before it and after it. So, you know, the text that would say, you know, that verse, you would give the verse before it and the verse after it. He would want you to respond with a question to a question. And from that text, what is the next text say? Okay. Now, you wouldn't respond with the text you meant, but the text before or after that text that you meant. <laughs> Isn't this confusing? And they would go back and forth like this to be able to demonstrate simply how deep the scriptures have gotten into your bones. And so one scholar says in the New Testament that there are 22 remezes that Jesus gets involved with, with religious Pharisees. Pharisees would try to trap Jesus. What's going on? There are actually remezes going on. And so one of the great things you need to understand is, remember, rabbis are looking for the best of the best. And the driving question for a rabbi is this, does the student have what it takes to be like me? Can they continue my work? And if the rabbi believes that you have what it takes to follow him, he would say, come, follow me. This would be the greatest day of a Jewish person's life. The rabbi believes that I have what it takes to be like, are you kidding me? I mean, I made it. And so if they don't have what it takes, they would say to the Talmudin, you know, you do know Torah and you're a gifted student, but you do not have what it takes to be my Talmudin. So go home to your village, make babies, <laughs> pray, you know, and go and ply your trade, meaning go home and learn the family business because you will not be a rabbi. Now, when it comes to why did Jews not believe that Jesus was it, in the Christian text called the New Testament in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee and he sees two brothers, one named Simon called Peter and his other brother named Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Why are they fishermen? 
because they were plying their trade. They were the B team. They were not the good enough ones. And yet Jesus, in the very next verse, verse 19, he says, come follow me. Who says those words? A rabbi. Jesus says, and I will teach you to fish for people. And at once they left their net. You're wondering like, who? they don't even know this guy and suddenly they're going to just follow him. What's going on? Why would they immediately drop everything in their whole lives and follow? Because a rabbi, Jesus is a rabbi, thinks they are good enough. The rabbi thinks I can be like him. But notice the next section because this is even more fascinating. In verse 21 of that same letter, Matthew chapter 4, it says, Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with the father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left their boats and their father and followed them. Now, it's always kind of bothered me again. It's like, what's up? Like, does Zebedee react in a way? Like, what's going on? I mean, what's happening in this moment? And it's because, oh my gosh, from a long way off, a rabbi thinks these guys have what it takes. A father would be so proud, right? It would be this thing of like, oh my gosh. Now, as you go forward, Jesus was not the one who got on a white horse and was the political leader to overthrow the Romans. He was the one coming in on a donkey. He was the meek and humbled one. Jesus was the one who hung out with quote-unquote sinners. He was the first woman's rights activist. He was the one looking for the oppressed, looking for those who were disease-ridden. He would go heal them and connect with them and love them and serve them. He didn't want anything to do with the Roman rule. (laughs) He would say, okay, well, we're supposed to pay all these taxes. So Jesus, you need to revolt against the tax. Well, what coin does it say? It's to Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. And so, so many people would like, Jesus does not fit the bill for what they thought of. And on top of that, he hires the B team to follow him. This is why Judaism does not follow Jesus today as the Messiah, and yet to this day are still looking for the Messiah. Does this make sense? Powerful stuff. Now, one of the things you need to understand here with Judaism today is that like every major religion, there are branches. There are different types of Judaism. And so within this, again, painting with a very broad brushstroke, but number one, there's Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism is essentially all Judaism was until 300 years ago, all right? There wasn't any other kind of Judaism. This is the one where they believe in the Shabbat, the holy day, to be able to rest, and the 612 other laws right? That is Orthodox Judaism. But as time progressed in the 18th century, there became the Hasidic Jews in Eastern Europe. And Hasidic Jews emphasize in a mystical experience with God that involves a direct communion through prayer and worship. Then there's the Reform Judaism. Reform Judaism is probably one of the most liberal categories of Judaism. You'll see most Reform Judaism in the United States of America today, where they follow maybe ethical traditions of Judaism, like festivals, feasts, you know, being able to break the glass at a wedding. You know, if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you'll stomp on the glass at the end and then they'll all scream Mazel Tov, which is good fortune, right? 
but they don't really follow the strict observance of Jewish laws, okay? They have way more progressive ideas and adaptations, and most of those Jews, again, are living in the United States. There's conservative Judaism, which is Judaism kind of somewhere between Orthodox and Reformed Judaism, and they typically honor, you know, the tradition of Judaism while following some other form of modernization. There's Reconstructionist Judaism, which dates back to 1922 when Mordecai Kaplan founded a Society of Advancement of Judaism, and they basically have a religious civilization that is constantly evolving. There's humanistic Judaism, which is probably definitely the most liberal across the board. Rabbi Sherwin Wine founded the denomination in 1963, and humanistic Judaism celebrates Jewish history and culture without an emphasis of God. You'll see a lot of that here in Denver, Colorado. A lot of people are like, I love the traditions. We do Hanukkah, and we celebrate, you know, certain festivals. Festivals, you know, but that's about it. And so a lot of people ask, well, what is Hanukkah about? We have Christmas and we have Hanukkah. Well, Hanukkah, according to the Talmud, is one of Judaism's most central texts. And Judah Maccabee is his name. And the other Jews who took part in the rededication of the second temple witnessed what they believed to be a miracle, even though there was only enough untainted olive oil to keep the menorah's candle burning for a single day. The flames continued to flicker for eight days and nights, leaving them, you know, time to find a fresh supply. So this wondrous, miraculous event inspired the Jewish sages to proclaim a yearly eight-day festival. The first book of Maccabees, which is one of the letters of the Judaism Talmud, tells another version of the story describing as an eight-day celebration that followed the rededication, making no reference to necessarily a miracle of oil. But it happens in the month of Kislev, which is December. And so that's why Hanukkah is right next to Christmas, and Christmas is focused on Jesus. So different perspectives based on different religions there. And so again, that temple, the second temple was built in the 400 BCs. That temple falls in 70 AD. And that was another massive oppression for the Jews and the scattering of Israel. Today, Israel still stands. People went to the Palestine in 1948. Israel officially became an independent nation. And so there is still the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims all still want that as an epicenter place, which we'll talk more about in the future. But Judaism has this rich, rich culture and tradition where they stick together. You'll see today where people are like, wow, why are Jews so rich? <laughs> they stay as a tribe. And if you were oppressed, so would you. And you stay together. You buy from one another. You sell from one another. And so they really have a rich culture. Jews are so intelligent. They're rich, beautiful people. And again, there's so much more to Judaism, but this is really a good framework for you to understand kind of with a broad stroke of who the Jews are today. So there you have it, Judaism 101. Next time, we're going to look at the offshoot of Judaism, which is the religion of Islam. Cheers for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Matt Morgan Coaching Podcast. Subscribe below, share it with your friends, and if you want to take your life, love, or leadership to the next level, check us out online at mattmorgan.com.